our Bible reading from today is from Daniel chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's um, some around you that you're more than welcome to use. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, May the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, 
and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lived forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stand, say his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in his pride he is able to humble. Thank you, Rex. Well, good morning. Perhaps it's clear to you now why we sang Only a Holy God and Holy, Holy, Holy to begin with. Let me encourage you as you uh, meditate on this passage on Daniel chapter 4 throughout the week to look over the lyrics of those songs again to sing them and see how they declare truths that we have just looked at. Well, in the words of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. If you're a Christian here this morning, then I'm sure that you would say a hearty amen to that statement. If you're not a Christian, you might have some questions or perhaps even some objections to that statement. Things, if you're interested, that I would love to talk to you about afterwards. But for all of us, we need to wrestle with some questions that arise from this statement. How did this truth shape Daniel's life? And how did it transform Nebuchadnezzar's life? And how might it reshape our own lives today? 
in perhaps just as radical ways. We're going to take a, a minute to turn over in our hearts and minds this great truth of who God is and the fact that his kingdom reigns forever. And then I'm going to pray for us. Let's spend a minute doing that. How great are your signs and how mighty are your wonders. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures from generation to generation. Lord, may that be a truth that doesn't remain locked away in our minds as something abstract which doesn't direct or influence our lives, something that doesn't touch or change or shape our hearts. But Lord, as with all of your word, may we come away transformed by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 4 of Daniel, if you have it open in front of you, is basically divided into three panels, which will map onto my three points this morning. The first panel is where we see King Nebuchadnezzar issue a decree to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And he introduces his story, which he's about to tell in this chapter, by declaring up front the truth that he has discovered on his way through it. And that is that God is the King of heaven and that his kingdom is forever. In the second panel, in verses 4 to 33, we see the vision that God gives him and its interpretation by Daniel and finally its fulfillment. And in the third and final panel, we see the king finally humbling himself and learning the lesson from the vision and its interpretation from Daniel. As I said, these three panels will map onto my three points, which I've titled with lyrics from songs that we sing here at Emmaus Road Baptist Church. And actually, after each point, we're going to sing each of those songs so that we can not only understand these truths with our minds, but also engage our hearts with them. And so if you want to take notes, our three points are, His kingdom is forever. Point two, nothing in my hands I bring. Point three, oh, lift your eyes to heaven. The second point, given the size of the passage, will be by far the longest. So let's begin at point one. His kingdom is forever. Have a read of verses one and two. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. You might remember that from the last few weeks, what we have seen is a king who does not revere or worship the Most High God. Even though he's already seen how God gave Daniel and his friends unmatched wisdom in chapter 1, and had a vision from God which was then miraculously interpreted by Daniel in chapter 2, and then he saw God pluck Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire in chapter 3. At each point, as we've seen, he still hasn't seen him as his 
God. He's recognized God and he's acknowledged all that God has done, but he has not bowed down to him in worship himself. And as we'll see in the second panel of this chapter, even after the fiery furnace and yet another vision from God, he still has not humbled himself. But what we have in these opening verses is a statement that comes after all of the events of chapter 4. It's a summary at the beginning of, of what has happened. As a matter of fact, the first and third panels, they parallel one another. You'll see similar language in the last section. And so this little introduction that Nebuchadnezzar gives is giving you an idea of how this story is going to end. And it's doing so in the form of this decree that Nebuchadnezzar gives to all nations, peoples, languages. Now, in the ancient world, uh, it was common for kings to make decrees. Uh, but the content of Nebuchadnezzar's decree here is uncommon. And so it shows what a real turnaround there finally was in his life. So for this reason, some find it hard to believe that such a decree could be a genuine one. Many think that this is just a, a historical fabrication. How could a pagan polytheistic king make such a, an international decree that is basically admitting that the God of one of the nations that he conquered is, is actually more powerful than him and his Babylonian God? That's just, that's just you, you could not imagine that happening. It would be like the current Sultan of Brunei, Hassanal Bolkaya, I believe is how you pronounce his name, the devout Muslim king of a small Muslim nation announcing to the world that he has become a Christian. It would have that degree of, of shock. You can imagine the stir and the headlines that that would create. And yet this is what God does. He delights in overturning expectations, doing signs and wonders, the most incredible of which is turning the hardest hearts of stone into flesh. And as a result, perhaps the most incredible part of this story, and as we're going to see, as you've already heard, there are some incredible parts of this story. Perhaps the most incredible part is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar would not only come to believe this, but that he would proclaim it to the world. Now, just to be clear, there's a bit of a controversy about whether Nebuchadnezzar truly did become a God-fearer or not. We don't have any other record of him doing so, so we can't say for sure that he did. If you're not convinced that he did, that's a reasonable position. But given the progression of this story, as I've, as I've just outlined before, in these first four chapters of Daniel 4, and what is recorded of his decree and his words here at the beginning and at the end of the chapter, uh, I'm inclined to think that, that he had genuine faith. And we'll see more of that by the end. But for now, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, does this decree, does it resonate with you? Do you seek to proclaim who God is and all that He has done in Jesus to the world? Do you love the peoples of the world so much that you want them to have peace multiplied to them the way that Nebuchadnezzar did? Such peace can only be fully and finally attained in the truth of God's everlasting kingdom. 
Do these truths in verse 3, which are mirrored in Psalm 145.13, do they capture and do they captivate your heart so much that you long for it to go out and for all peoples and nations and languages of the world to hear it? These are truths that change lives and transform kingdoms. And transform nations and princes and plebeians. From 6th century Babylon all the way through to 21st century Australia. May they captivate our hearts so that we might also desire to see them proclaimed through all the world. And one way God has given us to engage truth with our hearts is by singing. So as we reflect on this opening panel of Daniel 4 and the truths held within it, let's do so by singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Please stand and sing with us as we declare that His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. It is forever. And that has implications. Which brings us to point two. Nothing in my hands I bring. In our second panel, Nebuchadnezzar starts to tell the story in the first person. This is his story. And right from the beginning, you already know that it's, it's not going to go great for him. The verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. This is what we often call the calm before the storm. It's funny, isn't it? We've, we've come to expect that if things are going well for us and we are at ease and prospering, Something is just bound to go wrong. We're just waiting for that thing to go wrong. That, my friends, is the triumph of the thriller movie. And in this case, it's a good instinct to have. Nebuchadnezzar had not a care in the world. He was king of the largest empire on earth at the time. And he didn't know what was about to happen to him. Brothers and sisters, take care that you don't become so ease in, at ease in this world that you begin to think that you have sovereignty over your situation. But if God does graciously humble you, He's doing it to remind you that it is His kingdom and not yours that will reign forever. The design of the book of Daniel has some wonderful parallels and mirror sections. What we see happen to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 has many similarities with chapter 2, when he had a vision from God that he wanted all of his magicians to explain to him. And we see a a similar story in chapter 5, which we'll see next week, with one of Nebuchadnezzar's successes, Belshazzar. And the same thing that happened in chapter 2 happens in all of them. God gives the king a vision which causes him great distress and fear. So he calls, in, he calls in his magicians and his astrologers to interpret it, but they are not able to. 
In chapter 2, the king wanted them to tell him the dream as well as the interpretation. But here, he tells them the dream, and they still can't give him the interpretation. Now, given that the purpose of this one uh, is a bit more obvious, and it's actually explicitly stated in the dream, I do wonder if perhaps they were just a little bit afraid of pointing out what was plainly obvious. But as we've come to expect, Daniel can and he will. Do you notice how in verse 8, there is a sense of trust and relationship and esteem that the king now has for Daniel, or Belteshazzar, as he has renamed him. Nebuchadnezzar describes him as having the spirit of the holy gods, something that you would expect him to say, given that at this point he still didn't worship the Lord. Daniel's reputation has now been well and truly proven to the king. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar thinks that no mystery is too difficult for him. Now, I wouldn't exactly call this a bromance between the two. I'm not sure if that's even... I don't think you can even do that with a king. But I point that out to you. I point out Nebuchadnezzar's esteem for Daniel because, as we'll see later, Daniel returns that to him. And for now, Nebuchadnezzar tells us about the dream. And the centerpiece of it is this great tree. Some have called it a world tree. The picture for me that comes to mind uh, is from an old animated movie called Fern Gully. Has anyone ever seen that? You have to be pretty old to have seen that. Uh, Or the, the modern, or more modern, slightly more modern, big budget equivalent in James Cameron's Avatar In both of these trees, there are fairies living in the cartoon one, and there are the Navi and alien race living in the other one. This this whole idea of, you know, big trees, people living in them, that's that's kind of what comes to mind for me. But long before these fictional examples uh, and fictional explorations of make-believe creatures making their home in a tree, people in the ancient world used this image of a big tree to depict greatness and cosmic significance. It's an image that, uh, that God took to, to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar and, Nebuchadnezzar and radically changed it to communicate his truth to him. The Epic of Gilgamesh is one such document that you can go and check out if you are interested. But the Bible itself also uses this image outside of Daniel 4 in Ezekiel 31, where Ezekiel compares Pharaoh with Assyria being like a great tree. And there, similarly in, in Ezekiel 31, God humbles the tree and its pride. Well, verses 11 and 12 of Daniel 4 give us a sense of the grand scope and the size of this tree. Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the entire world. All creatures and birds, they nested in it, and it provided for all living things. As we also saw in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar he, he really, truly is a great king with a great kingdom. Yes, this language here is exaggerated, but he really was the ruler of the greatest kingdom in the world at the time. But in this dream, all of that is about to change. A watcher or a holy one comes down from heaven. There's a bit of debate as to exactly what this watcher is, but the simple answer is that it basically is a messenger from God, like an angel. 
And this watcher pronounces God's judgment on this large, proud tree. Let's read that from verse 14. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The whole image and its point is pretty clear, isn't it? We even have a modern-day phrase which is equivalent to the humbling that is happening here. We often say, you want to cut someone down, cut a person down to size. It's to humble them. And the description here happens in two parts. Firstly, the tree is chopped down and only a stump is left, bound with iron and bronze. And secondly, the man goes from being a person made in the image of God to being a beast of the earth having the mind of one. An interesting and important note is that the the word for periods of time in verse 16 is not the same word for years. So Daniel has intentionally chosen to be unspecific. And so it's likely, as we've seen already in this book, that seven represents completeness. And so what Daniel is communicating is, is that this will happen to Nebuchadnezzar until he finally humbles himself. As I read through this chapter a few times, I had to go over these verses to see if I could detect a a shift from the watcher talking about the tree to then talking about a person. I don't know if you noticed that. He doesn't actually point it out, but he's he's talking about the tree as an it, and then in verse 15, he then begins talking about the him. So he just shifts the image, indicating that he is, when he's talking about the tree, he's clearly talking about the same person. Now, the point of both images is the same. The tree is cut down to size, it is humbled, and the man is also humbled. For what purpose? Verse 17, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets, it, and sets over it the lowliest of men. One of the best things about Daniel chapter 4 is that God tells you right here what the whole point of the chapter is. It is so you and I and so that the whole world can know that no matter how powerful an earthly kingdom gets, it is only there because God rules it and has given it power. Once again, this is extremely relevant to us whether it's Christians under siege in Ukraine, Christians feeling threatened by the BJP political party in India that has just been re-elected and seems to be growing in influence, Christians in the West who feel like our societies and our nations are increasingly rebelling against God, or Christians everywhere who are trying to figure out how they should interact with their ruling government. This is a truth that we must and continue to proclaim, 
to ourselves as much as to everybody else. I wonder if Paul had Daniel chapter 4 in mind when he wrote Romans 13. Do you believe that these things are true? Do you believe that all earthly authority gets its authority from God? How does believing this show itself in your life? How does it show up in your voting and your political engagement? As we've talked about over the last few weeks, it's good for Christians to engage in the political process and to seek to call governments to the things God has put them in power for. Romans 13 verse 4, after all, reminds us that authorities are God's servants for our good. But how do you respond when the party that you voted for, the party that you think is, is best going to achieve this, doesn't get in? Do you despair? Do you feel like God has lost? Or do you have a quiet confidence that God is still the one who rules the kingdoms of men? Now, I get the feeling that as Australians, most of us don't tie our identity and hope to political parties as much as perhaps some other nations and cultures. For me personally, I find the truth of God's sovereignty harder to believe when I see that the, the unelected and unofficial authorities of our society begin to win out. As Christians get pushed out to the margins of Australian society, as what we hold to be true and, and, and good for everybody becomes more and more unacceptable, and as, as many of the most vulnerable pay the price and are sacrificed on the altar of our idols of self and comfort and progress, I wonder how God could possibly still be sovereign over that. How is it that I can look around and see so many people completely disregard the, the wonderful, great truths and, 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 and things that God has placed into our lives and our, our humanity and our societies for our good? Is it really that good if so many people can't see it? Do you ever feel the same way? Does your faith and confidence in the Most High God wither in the face of cultural defeat? More often than not, you might say, I see proud and arrogant people becoming powerful and influential and enjoying the good life. More often, I can say along with Job, why did the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? What good is God's so-called sovereignty if he can't get rid of proud kings and proud people right now? Well, brothers and sisters, Verse 17 was written for you, and it was written for me. God cuts down world trees. He humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble.
Do you take comfort in that? Do you put your hope in that? Nebuchadnezzar finishes telling Daniel the dream and once again showers praise upon him and asks him to tell him the interpretation of it. Let's read his response in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Notice his immediate response. Daniel is dismayed and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king, in yet another show of their relationship, he tries to reassure him. But Daniel shows his evident love for Nebuchadnezzar if you'll permit me to call it that. I think that is reasonable license. He shows it by first addressing him again as his Lord, but then also wishing that this dream was not about him. I find this to be such a remarkable response. Tell me something. How do you normally respond to proud people? Kanye West, world-renowned rapper who claimed to convert to Christianity a few years ago and then released the album Jesus is King, has also had no shortage of proud and arrogant quotes in his life. This has got to be one of the top ones, I think. I changed the sound of music more than one time. For all those reasons, I'd be a part of the Bible. I'm definitely in the history books already. Aside from perhaps his biggest fans, I think most people hear that, roll their eyes, and then hope that, some, you know, that, that such massive pride will be swiftly followed by a massive fall. Right? What about proud and arrogant people that you come into contact with in your day-to-day life. Your family members who love to boast about their achievement. Your friends or colleagues who love to rub in your face how good they are or how successful they've been. What are your thoughts towards them? How do you act towards them? When Kanye West first claimed to have become a Christian, there was all sorts of commentary from Christians about whether he was being genuine or not. Now, seeking to be discerning is good and godly. I think that's a good thing. But what really disappointed me in all of that commentary was that it sounded like so many Christians actually didn't want him to be a genuine Christian. They were hoping for, they were cheering for his downfall. They were waiting for, looking for that time when he was going to mess up. It was almost like they would have preferred that Kanye West burn in hell forever than know the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we respond this way towards the proud, 
Is that not also pride in our own hearts that we have failed to see? Is that not also a self-inflated self-righteousness that thinks we are so much better than arrogant people? C.S. Lewis talks about pride as the great sin in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's a snippet from the opening paragraph. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, or no woman which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it. In others. Do you see what he's saying? The more pride you have in yourself, the more you wince and get riled up when you see it in others. The opposite of that is also true. The less you have of it in yourself, the more you recognize it in yourself and see that the next person is in as much need of redemption from it than as you are. Daniel, despite having risen to great heights in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he recognized this. And that's why he was able to have the response that he had. Even after this king had conquered his nation, even he had ordered for his three best friends to be thrown into a furnace. Of course he knew the king was arrogant. I mean, what kind of humble person builds a 30-meter golden statue to their brilliance? Yet because of his love for him, Daniel did not delight in revealing that the king would get his comeuppance. He did not rub his hands together with glee about to pronounce the judgment and the cutting down of this great tree. He did not desire for the king to have such a spectacular, humiliating fall. No, he desired for the king to be redeemed. As Daniel recounted the dream and gave its interpretation, he made it very clear that the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar and that he was the one who was going to be chopped down and humbled by God. You see, this is another feature of real love for others. Love not only desires redemption for the proud... But love also does not hold back the truth. Love does not try to withhold the difficult or unsavory aspects of the truth. Even though Daniel did not desire for Nebuchadnezzar to experience what God revealed to him, that didn't drive him to then avoid it, like the magicians did. It didn't drive him to change the message or to somehow blunt the force of it. No, that is what false prophets do. We have plenty of examples of that throughout the rest of Scripture. They think it is more loving to say what will make their listeners feel better or safer or to withhold any talk of God's judgment. But Daniel, out of love and care for this king, spoke the whole truth to him. 
And unlike many other visions, especially those in the book of Daniel, the interpretation of this one is is pretty straightforward. What the watcher describes in the dream is exactly what is going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this mental delusion of a person thinking that they're an animal is sometimes called zoanthropy, in case you're wondering, which I'm sure you were. But whether God struck Nebuchadnezzar with a recognizable, diagnosable psychological disorder or not is beside the point. What matters is the purpose of which he did it. And what's the purpose? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. We're going to come back to this in the next section. As Daniel restates the purpose of God's cutting down of the king, he goes on to express the hope that God offers to those who humble themselves. He is the purpose of the stump. God is not completely destroying him, but he is mercifully giving him an opportunity to repent and to continue. Let's read how Daniel urges him in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be, perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, love seeks the humbling redemption of the proud. It speaks the whole truth to them, and it urges repentance and the pursuit of righteousness. Sounds not exactly, but a lot like what Jesus would say hundreds of years later. Brothers and sisters, do you love all people so much that you desire to see them know the truth about God? And out of that love, you speak the whole truth of the gospel to them, urging them to repent and to believe. Well, in the final section of this middle panel, we have yet again, for the last time in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar either completely forgetting, not caring, or suppressing a message that God is trying to get through to him. It's worth reading verses 28 to 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In the same way that powerful people love penthouses and proud kings love their palaces Nebuchadnezzar here is up on the roof, able to survey his great kingdom and proudly bask in his glory and majesty. The famous hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and were probably already built by this time. Once again, another 
magnificent structure would have, that would have been a testament to his greatness. Twelve months has passed and God chooses this moment of self-aggrandizement to humble the proud king. This isn't the first time that God has humbled a proud king and it certainly won't be the last. In very similar circumstances, Acts 12 describe how God would bring judgment on Herod for his pride. Herod is judged immediately, just as Nebuchadnezzar is in verse 33. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the judgment is pronounced by what? A voice from heaven. That voice repeats what was told to him 12 months earlier in the vision and Daniel's interpretation. What is about to happen? You're about to get zoanthropy. And the purpose is once again repeated. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Did you notice how the purpose of his humiliation here was slightly different than when Daniel talked about it in the previous section. Sorry, when Daniel talked about it, it's slightly different to when Nebuchadnezzar first talked about it. You see, the scope of it has been narrowed. When Nebuchadnezzar first mentioned it, it was so that all the living may know that God is king. But now here, and in Daniel's speech, it has been narrowed to the individual, to the king. It's interesting that God fulfills His purpose of all the living knowing that He is sovereign through one person being humbled and learning that truth. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he went on to proclaim that truth to the world. You and I now read of it over two and a half thousand years later. So it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was one who humbled himself. Not because he was proud, but because he chose to. And he would proclaim the truth of his kingdom to all the world and instruct his disciples to do the same. So how is it that the good news is proclaimed to all people, nations and languages? What did Jesus tell his disciples to do after he was raised from the dead? He has authority. Go, make disciples of all nations. The good news of the gospel is on the lips of those, the individuals who have been humbled by God. It is proclaimed by those who have been brought low by God. And it brings another dimension to this truth. The fact that God's kingdom is forever and that He is the one who rules human kingdoms changes the way that we see the kingdoms of this world. And that is a truth that is also intensely personal. Let me ask you, in what ways do you also walk around on the rooftop of your kingdom? marveling at the glory of your own majesty. 
We, perhaps more than the majority of people in history, know how to create our own individual little kingdoms. You can create your own little palace. You can set up fences around it, on the borders of it. You can even set the temperature inside your own little castle. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he could be at ease in his palace, but he couldn't do that. Our very lives and our culture encourage us to create a kingdom of our own that we can glory in. None of us would be so bold as to say that that that's what we're doing, of course. But so often we preside over our own kingdoms as though they are not given by God, don't we? You see it when we treasure our homes more than our ability to be hospitable. You see it when we care more about the life success of our children than about them finding true peace in Jesus. You see it when you can't mourn with your brothers and sisters because you think that whatever they're going through still isn't as bad as what's, going, what's happening in your own life. You see it when you can't rejoice with your brothers and sisters because they, the source of their joy reminds you of what God has sovereignly withheld from your life. You see it when ease and success are more important to you than declaring to the world that Jesus is King. When factoring gospel proclamation into your life decisions ranks pretty low on your list of priorities. When was the last time you seriously considered devoting your life to gospel work overseas or to an indigenous community here in the Northern Territory? Do you love the peoples of the world enough that you would devote your life to them? And even if it's a remote possibility to do that full-time, the very exercise of seriously considering that will help reveal which areas of your own kingdom in your own heart have not been submitted to God's kingdom. And if it is a remote possibility, what are you doing today to be a part of that proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages? Brothers and sisters, which provinces of your personal kingdom remain under your kingship and not the kingship of the King of Heaven? In what parts of your life is your gaze still directed at yourself and at your glory? In what parts of your life are your eyes looking at the people around you, seeking their approval or what they have or or having an ability to be able to boast over them? When you are humbled by the King of heaven, you recognize that you approach him with nothing in your hands. And you bow before him, lift up your eyes, and praise him for his sovereignty and his grace. Let's reflect on this 
and offer it up as a prayer by singing good and gracious king. Feel free to remain seated or stand. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice. And in so doing, we lift our eyes, which brings us to point three, our final point. After so many visions and warnings and having them fulfilled and miracles unfolding before his eyes, Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledges who God is for himself. He's not just Daniel's God. He's not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. But he is his God. Let's read verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The purpose for the vision and the interpretation and its fulfillment finally happens. Nebuchadnezzar now knows that the Most High God rules over all human kingdoms. And I love how this is captured in in one short phrase. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This theme of heaven that has been happening throughout the chapter now reaches its highest point. The tree that stretched into heaven where birds of the heavens nested, the king's greatness that reached heaven, the watchers that came from heaven, the Jew of heaven that wet Nebuchadnezzar as God brought him low. The humbling that needed to occur so that Nebuchadnezzar would know that heaven rules. The voice that spoke from heaven. Do you see what's happening in this chapter? The great king whose greatness metaphorically stretched to heaven has been humbled by the God who actually speaks from and actually rules in heaven. The contest between the king whose greatness reached the heavens was, has finally been won by the God of heaven. That is why Nebuchadnezzar finally being humbled and truly acknowledging God can be expressed in so few words. I lifted my eyes to heaven. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about doing this, 
we are not just describing a physical act of, of looking upwards. It is a humble, active response to the fact that God rules over all earthly kingdoms, including our own. It is an act of praise and honor and surrender and submission to the King of heaven. It is an intentional shift from looking inward to ourselves and from looking sideways and caring more about what others might think of us or what we might think of us. It is taking our eyes off both of those and lifting them up to the King of heaven. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 34. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Unlike previous times we've seen this, Nebuchadnezzar now owns it. He is his God. And what happened when he humbled himself before God? What happened when he became the lowliest of men and humbled himself? God exalted him. His reason and his kingly glory and greatness returned. And even more than before. And the last words of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, in my mind, give us the strongest case that he really did come to worship the true God. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The King of heaven receives the praise he is due from the greatest king on earth. The once proud king has been humbled by the King of all kings. For an Israelite reading this in exile, whose nation has been made into a stump, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was, as Isaiah 6.13 portrays, there is hope. As commentator Ian DeGuid puts it, if Nebuchadnezzar could be forgiven and restored when he humbled himself and looked to the Lord, then Israel too could be forgiven and restored. The same reality is also true for us. The gospel is an intrinsically humbling message. The gospel is the good news that you and I are just as prone as Nebuchadnezzar to proudly glory in our own kingdoms. But God mercifully humbles us by reminding us that only He is King of heaven and earth. And not only that, but he does it by giving us the ultimate example of humility 
in Christ. You see, Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, the one who was there from the beginning, as John 1 and Colossians 1 tell us, he reigned in heaven as the second person of the Trinity. His glory didn't just reach to heaven, it filled heaven. Yet he didn't have to be brought low. He was willing to humble himself and enter into his own story, practicing righteousness, living a sinful life, showing mercy to the oppressed. And he went to the cross, the king of heaven, executed as a criminal on earth. Why? So that you might humble yourself before God and be exalted in his son. Listen to the Apostle Paul's instructions to the Philippian church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul instructs God's church to walk not in selfish ambition, but in humility. And how? Because we have seen this in Jesus. And we look to him who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most humiliating way to die. Jesus did not need to be cut down by God. He humbled himself. He brought himself low. He was obedient to death on a cross so that he could save a people for himself who would share in his exaltation by the Father. Friends, if you have not yet humbled yourself before God, let me urge you to do so as Daniel did to his king. You see, even though God might not strike you down with zoanthropy, there is a day coming when He will humble not just all kings, but all people. And not just for seven periods of time, but for all eternity. We have hope and we trust in Him today because we know that even though God may not deal with proud kings and proud people today in this moment the same way He did with Nebuchadnezzar, He will one day when Jesus returns. And on that day, there will be no opportunity for changing your mind. God calls you today. He calls you now to humble yourself before Him. Now is the time. Today is the day to respond to Jesus. Because if you don't bow before Him today, you will when he returns. As Philippians 2 tells us. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you lift your eyes to the King of Heaven? Let me pray. Lord, you deserve the greater glory, the greatest glory. Humble our proud hearts, we pray, that we may lift our eyes to you, the King of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.